Welcome to episode 178 of X-Lapsed, and uh, we're heading back to the uh, Boneyard today, the potentially haunted Boneyard, so let's get right into it. Now today we're going to be discussing X-Factor Volume 4, number 8, had a May 2021 cover date. Story's title is, um, hmm, might need a running start here, uh, Sweet Number 8. Skyo me nihil skyri skiri uh, tritone substitution jazz arrangement. <clears throat> okay, we'll just uh, move along. Uh, written by Leo Williams with art by David Baldion. Colors Israel Silva. Letters VCs Joe Caramagna. Designs Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits Andrews Bellasteros. Thomas White Sabolski. Cover price three dollars ninety nine cents. This one went on sale March ten of twenty twenty one. Now we open at the Boneyard, duh. Uh, but we're not picking up right where we left off last issue. We're actually going to be stepping back a little bit before the cliffhanger reveal that ended X-Factor number 7. If you recall, the cliffhanger was that basically everybody was dead. We don't know how that happened, but we're going to find out now. Now we've got Northstar. He's sitting on the couch watching TV, uh, calling out to Aurora in order to uh, ruin her hot tub sexy time with Dakin. Dakin. Uh, I guess she excused herself to go pee, but instead was, uh, you know, lounging with uh, Dakin. Dakin. She's soaking wet, and uh, that's not a euphemism, and shame on you for thinking it was. Uh, John Paul remarks that it looks like she might have fallen in, which gets him a soppy, wet kick. I think the uh, most disturbing part of this scene is the fact that Aurora, while soaking wet, just plopped herself down on the couch. That's, nah, that's, a, that's a foul, isn't it? Uh, worth noting, well, probably not worth noting, but they're watching an awful B-movie. What we get is a shot of the television, and we see a blonde woman and a bunch of birds. I'm not sure if this is um, the birds. Uh, I don't know that that would be considered a B-movie. Uh, the only thing that comes to mind for me is that uh, The Crows Have Eyes film that Maura Rose was in in Schitt's Creek. Maybe uh, maybe we've just revealed a Maura-Moira connection. Uh, probably not. We jump over to Rachel's room, and Amazing Baby, the werewolf pup, is acting all sorts of fussy. Barking at things that aren't there, just making a real nuisance of himself while Rachel is trying to sleep. Now, we in the real world would uh, just refer to this phenomenon as owning a chihuahua. Because uh, if I had a nickel for every time mine bark at absolutely nothing throughout the day and or night, I'd probably break even on my comics bill and uh, then some. Now, Rachel decides to take A.B. outside, thinking maybe he just wants to sleep under the stars. Downstairs, she runs into I-Boy, who's standing there all creepy-like. Rachel tells him that the war wolf pup is being annoying and barking at nothing. 
and so he asks if Amazing Baby can come sleep with him, and A.B. seems more than happy to do so. As Rachel heads back to bed, Trevor tells Amazing Baby that he can see something strange, too. I'm not sure why he didn't just let Rachel in on this secret. Uh, He might have uh, saved a handful of lives if he did, but we'll get there. From here, double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters today will include North Star, Prodigy, Prestige, Eyeboy, Polaris, Dakin, Dakin, and Aurora with the Roll Eyes. We head over to Prodigy's room, where he's still investigating that photo of him making out with speed that we saw either last issue or the one before that. He's using some VR technology in order to break the image down into layers. Suddenly, however, a holographic face emerges from his monitor, which, as you might imagine, freaks him the F out. He rants about this uh, cheap, human-made tech, blaming it for the jump scare. Well, excuse us for not having access to Shi'ar technology there, Prodigy. Um, Now, we go from here to an info page. This breaks down the uh, making-out photo. Now, I do have a few years of forensic studies under my belt, but I've never had to deal with mutants and resurrection, so we'll, uh, we'll just let this page explain itself. We have the photo, and it's broken down into three layers, okay? The topmost one reveals that there had been some edits made to the photo. The second reveals the GPS coordinates and the date and time stamp of when this photo was taken. Also, the fact that David himself edited the photo in order to find it again later. He would tag Tommy or Speed in this photo to ensure he'd be aware of it and also give David an alibi. Not exactly sure what the alibi would be for, but maybe we'll find out. The third layer of the photo reveals that the photo was taken on Prodigy's old, pre-death, cell phone. So, the conclusions that are drawn here include, uh, you know, the originally believed cause of death for David was incorrect. Also, the photo was not taken at that club in West Hollywood, but it was posted from there. The photo was snapped on Prodigy's old phone, which he hasn't seen since being resurrected. The photo was taken and posted during a Cerebro blind spot meaning it, ha- it occurred right smack between Cerebro backups, one week before, one week after. I'm not sure why this wouldn't be included in the subsequent backup, unless he died before it. I'm not really sure. Uh, we wrap up this jam-packed info page with David wondering when and if he should involve X-Factor in this mystery. Let's head back to comics, and we're over to Dakin, Dakin who's uh, still soaking in the hot tub while dreaming of Aurora, And uh, he sees her in his dream, and he thanks her for saving him last issue. And uh, she tells him that uh, she didn't. And in fact, she didn't. It was Northstar was the one who saved him. This dream turns into a uh, Morrigan-fueled nightmare as Dakin, Dakin, is dragged under the water. He wakes up, pulls himself out, mutters something in Japanese, and leaves. Over to Eyeboy and Amazing Baby, who are huddled under a blanket waiting for the bad thing to go away. I think what we're supposed to be getting here is that Eyeboy's fear is so intense, and also that Dakin, Dakin's pheromone sensitivity is so strong that maybe it was Eyeboy that woke Dakin, Dakin up in the hot tub. I'm not sure, but whatever the case, Dakin, Dakin shows up to uh, tell both Trevor to shut the F up and also find out what's wrong. Then the Morrigan strikes. Eyeboy, Dakin, Dakin, and Amazing Baby run away. Which takes us to the cliffhanger from last issue, which doesn't feel quite as organic as it did last issue. I thought it was uh, that Dakin, Dakin, happened upon Prodigy and Eyeboy huddled in the TV room. But here, it's as though he and Trevor arrived together in fleeing the Morrigan. Maybe 
Maybe I'm misremembering. I don't know. Whatever the case, it's here where iBoy reveals that everybody else is dead. Prodigy uses iBoy's powers to examine the bodies of their fallen teammates. Now, they can find trace elements of hollyhock flowers, honey, and chalk, which I guess are three of Siren's favorite things, because uh, that's all Prodigy needs in order to give us an aha. Dakin Dakin then skirts out and prepares to kill him a Morrigan. He is unsuccessful, and is in fact killed himself. We turn the page, and bada-bing, bada-boom, X-Factor, in its entirety, are being resurrected. And uh, I guess it's a good thing they didn't all die. I mean, Prodigy and iBoy are still around. Otherwise, who would confirm that they were actually dead? We'd be in uh, X-Factor limbo forever. Northstar pops out of his gold ball, and he's met by his husband, Kyle. Now, Kyle asks one of those inconvenient questions that we love so, so much here on the show. He asks if this John Paul is really his John Paul. And, I mean, it's a, it's a good question, isn't it? Um, and I believe we did go into depth on this idea when Orphan Maker made the same observation in light of uh, one of Empath's many deaths over in Hellions. It's like, hey, he, he looks like the same guy, and he remembers a lot of the stuff as the same guy, but is he actually the same guy? It's a, a tough question. Kyle does not ask if they're still married, though, which, I mean... Technically, uh, till death to us part has already passed, and I guess that could be kind of a sticky wicket. Now, Northstar is able to convince him that he's the real deal by threatening to give him, like, a, a slimy dry hump or something. Rachel pops out of her gold ball, and Amazing Baby immediately jumps into her lap. Aurora and Dakin, Dakin wake up, with the former asking the latter what he remembers. And the last thing he remembers is being impaled in the snow. Now that means he doesn't remember Northstar rescuing him, nor the scene that he shared with Aurora in the hot tub. Lorna wakes up, and she's just so mad that the Morgan chose to kill her in her sleep. Professor X tells her not to beat herself up, and Polaris asks Charles not to tell her father about this, though I would have to assume he already knows. Now the gimmick here is the Morgan reanimated the bodies of the Boneyard's cadaver farm, including the dead X-Factor characters, so we've got us a zombie haunted house situation going on. And so, for the remainder of the issue, X-Factor takes back the Boneyard. And if I'm being completely honest, it's fairly underwhelming and rushed. Um, Lorna and Rachel, uh, they use the combined cab stare to drive the Morrigan from Siren's body. And uh, Siren is free, at least for now. Uh, she feels that the Morrigan is trying to uh, reassert itself or herself, but... That is where we leave it. We do close out with an info page, and it's an email exchange between Professor X and Northstar. Charles comments that iBoy's powers might be more than meets the, uh, well, you know. He asks that Northstar keep him apprised on, on all of this. To which, John Paul replies with a single word. And that word is no. That's where we leave it. Next episode, we go back to black. King in black. It's sword number four. But now let's uh, have some thoughts and theories on this issue of X-Factor. Um, my main takeaway here is that it felt a little bit truncated. Like, I don't know if we're trying to wrap this story up before the Hellfire Gala happens. Um, and part of me wonders if the gala is happening as originally scheduled. Like, even from, like, a year ago, they already had this kind of penciled in for June 2021. And if that's the case... I suppose the argument can certainly be made for the stories between X of Swords and the Gala being, well, truncated, kind of squished. 
X of Swords was supposed to occur, if I'm not mistaken, during the late summer of 2020. I believe the, uh, I mean, the free comic book day thing was supposed to come out in May, and that was uh, heavily leaning into uh, the launch of that event. But instead, due to the COVID hiatus, it didn't hit until uh, probably late fallish. And I figured that that could certainly put a crimp on these opening uh, Reign of X stories. So maybe that's why I feel this way, or I don't know, maybe I'm just uh, making it up all in my, uh, my own head here. Now, I think we left a great deal of, I don't know, story capital on the table here. Uh, picture X-Factor fighting zombie versions of their own corpses. You know, reanimated versions of their previous selves here. We saw, I believe it was Aurora, like, drop-kicking dead Dakin, Dakin, you know, in the uh, in the boneyard there. The zombified, reanimated corpse of, of Dakin, Dakin. Now... I'm not a fan of zombie stories. I think they're more often than not uh, woefully dull and overdone and a little LOL random because I guess we all love zombies. But in this case, uh, it offers some excellent food for thought. Because here we have the members of X-Factor fighting their own previous bodies, right? Which, I mean, we've got questions in this issue from Kyle uh, saying, how can I be sure this is the real you to North Star? That might lend a bit of a crisis for our resurrected characters when faced off against their former selves or their former teammates here. Like, uh, which of the two would we consider to be realer, right? Is it the previous body who should be viewed as the real or maybe the prime version of our characters? Or would it be the new one, the newly resurrected? Maybe both? Maybe neither? Maybe that's why we don't want dupes on the island? Uh, I don't know. I just think that uh, this could have been... A fun angle to explore And instead It was a scene that was kind of glazed over Really, really quick You know, it was all building to um, Lorna and Rachel uh, Doing the cab ass stare And driving Morgan out of the uh, out of uh, Siren's body Really didn't get much of the uh, Of the battle inside the boneyard Unfortunately Another big takeaway from this issue for me Is the, uh, the last page The email, the info page Where Professor X is saying, hey, I've noticed that iBoy is, a uh, he's, his powers are kind of souping up here. Um, hey, uh, hey, uh, you know, Jean-Paul, how about you, you keep me apprised on all this stuff here, to which Northstar, who doesn't seem to trust the Quiet Council to begin with, is just like, nope, <laughs> not going to be doing that. I'm not reporting anything back to you guys. I like this a lot. I like this a lot because, I mean, we can look at it a couple ways here. If iBoy can see a lot of stuff, well, there's something on the island that uh, Professor X would probably prefer he didn't see. And uh, maybe his abilities can, uh, maybe they can find more as no place, right? I mean, that stands to reason. Also, I mean, we've been learning that iBoy's powers are, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the pun again, I apologize, they are more than meets the eye. So who's to say there isn't a uh, maybe a precognitive element to his powers here? Maybe he can, yeah. Maybe we, you know he can see things. Can he see through time? Is that something he can do? Is that something he's learning to do? Is that something that's manifesting in him? It's possible, and uh, we know that uh, precogs are a no go on Krakoa. So I think it's very telling that the professor wants to know more about this, and it's also uh, equally telling that uh, North Star is not. He's not going to play ball. 
I like this, and I really hope it's going somewhere. So ultimately, what we got here is a fairly strong issue. The only problems I have with it, outside of the suspected truncation, which, again, I, I don't know if that's actually the case or if this is just the way the stories are, are, was always going to be told, but I can, uh, I suppose I can complain a little bit about the overuse of death in these books again. <laughs> I mean, we just killed off nearly an entire team. Like, an entire cast of a book, minus two characters, was just killed. And I feel like we felt nothing. There was no mourning. There were no stakes. Hell, the deaths mostly happened off-panel. You know, we didn't even get to see what happened here. Though, in fairness, I guess North Star and Aurora being Alpha Flight alums ensures that this wasn't the first time that that happened for them. Uh, they die a lot off-panel over in Alpha Flight. Well, not in Alpha Flight, but in books that like to cite Alpha Flight, like uh, a lot of uh, a lot of Bendis-era Avengers. Like, ah, oh, Alpha Flight just died. Oh, cool. Can we see them? Nah, no, nah, just take our word for it. They're, they died. But what I'm trying to say here is, uh, you know, death as has been, you know, the, the custom since Hawksbox here is a... Uh, just gratuitously used. It's just a stake killer that I think it's going to be really, really hard to walk back. You know, this is a genie that it's going to take a lot of machinations to get it back in the bottle in a satisfying way. And I mean, I'm not saying that there isn't a way they can do it. It's just uh, I don't know how much damage we're doing right now to where death will ever be credible again. You know, I, I I long for the day where it is. Then again, this is comics, and uh, I can't remember a time where death was credible. So maybe I'm just, uh, I'm nostalgic for times that never existed or I never experienced. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about this issue here. Mostly good, a little bit of a sprint to the end, and uh, just more mutant deaths. If you're reading and enjoying X-Factor like I am, you're, you're going to mostly enjoy this. So I would definitely recommend checking it out. But from here, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a couple of letters here. One is a little challenging, I'm going to be completely honest with you. But we will start with a letter from Andrew Franklin talking about Hellions number 10. He says, My first draft of this email was just the sentence, Hellions is good, over and over again. And even though that's, that's true, I figure it needed a little bit more substance to it. I mean, you just uh, hit the nail on the head here with my big problem doing episodes about Hellions, because that's all I want to say over and over again. I love the book, and I feel like, you know, it's like I gush so much about it, and I think I say, like, if you're not reading Hellions, read Hellions, like, a million times every single time I cover it. So it's a, it's one of those good news, bad news situations, like I put it. Uh, it's a book I love to read. It's a book I love to write about. It's a book that I love to think about. It's a book that I love to anticipate. But when it comes down to actually... Putting it all into words, I'm just uh, hardly talented enough to do so, other than being like, hey, this is really good. Uh, Andrew continues, Something I like about this series is how, how each story has a setup issue where the team gets their missions. Most of the other books just sort of meander through their stories or have arcs that kind of blend into each other. But the clear-cut, get-mission-go-on-mission-repeat story structure really works for this book. And I love that you said that, because I feel like in any other era, we would see something like this as very formulaic, and we'd probably call it out for that. You know, it's like, ah, oh, well, this is the issue where they get the mission, this is when they go, this is when they almost lose, this is when they win, this is when they come back. And I mean, at the end of the day, it is a formulaic approach, it just 
everything is so different nowadays where, as you said, a lot of these stories just blend into one another. A lot of them, I mean, we have the flagship book. We have X-Men, which feels like just a series of part ones. You know, it feels like nothing ever gets solved. Nothing ever gets resolved. It's just like, hey, here's a really good idea I had. And here's 20 pages on it, and maybe we'll get back to it sometime down the line. And then we don't, or we wait a year, and then then maybe get back to it. Here with Hellions, it is just so traditional that it's refreshing in, in a way here. We do get, like, a, a very structured approach. And, I mean, the missions in and of themselves are interesting, but they're not really the meat and potatoes of the story here. The story is these broken characters, and... The missions are just the backdrop here. And, of course, you know, facilitating story beats. But, I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. It really, really is. Andrew continues. It was interesting to see Sinister in such a vulnerable position. Usually he's the torturer, so having him be the helpless victim is pretty novel. Having him paired with Arcade is very fun. Zeb Wells is very good at writing these weirdo psychopaths. He seems to be very good at using classic non-A-list villains and making them very threatening. I think the way he's using Mastermind is appropriately powerful and a clever use of his abilities. And, I mean, you hit it again. You hit it again here. I think, you know, growing up as a fan in the 90s, we knew which characters were the ones we needed to care about and which ones were kind of the jokey ones, right? But then we went into the 2000s where there was a... It was sort of an overcorrection, you know? It wasn't just making a formerly silly character into a threat. It was turning a usually silly character into the threat, you know? Look at, like, uh, Blackest Night over at DC. We had Black Hand, who was a goofy villain. It was the, the villain who would, you know, talk in riddles and rhymes and stuff and, and in turns of phrase. Was, was like, he, had, he was a weird gimmick character. He was a joke. I mean, Guy Gardner and Ice, you know, beat him up at the, at the porno theater at the, during their little date in, uh, in Justice League uh, International or Justice League America, whichever, whichever title it was going by at the time. But Jeff Johns turned him into the threat, like the biggest threat. And I feel like we've had that happen in Marvel as well, where you, there's no calibration. It's like, okay, this silly character, I like, what was the one that, was it... Not fear itself, um, boy, original sin, where they brought the uh, the one with the eyeball for a head. I don't remember his name, but like he was just a jokey villain with an eyeball for his head, and then it's like, no, 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 he is the big threat. Brian Vaughn introduces a street level character, the Hood. Bendis takes him, and oh, this is the main threat. There's no calibration. Where with Arcade here, he's not the main threat in the universe. He's just a psychopath who is now. Being treated a little bit differently He's still silly and He's still sick, he's still dangerous But now he it's just a new Modern twist that knows like where How far to push the envelope, right? It's not, he's not the big bad of the universe He's just a big bad For a story arc, and I really, really Dig it uh, Andrew continues I continue to really enjoy the character work Wells does with the team Particularly with Psylocke and Grey Crow He's really using the Fallen Angel Psylocke stuff to good effect, though I do agree with you that the Betsy Quinan stuff is getting played out, even if it was done well in this issue. The exploration of John Greycrow's character might be the thing I expected the least out of this book, yet enjoy the most. As far as I know, this is all new stuff, but it's done a remarkable job at humanizing a character who is basically the gun guy on a team of murderers. Yeah, you know, um, I didn't expect 
I mean, I expected nothing from Hellions when we started this run. Um, just looking at the cover of the first issue, I, I'm pretty sure I audibly groaned. You know, outside of Havoc, it was just like, okay, Wild Child, I don't care about Wild Child. Quanon, oh boy, we just had Fallen Angels, I don't care about Quanon. Oh, Grey Crow, I don't care about that guy. Nanny and the Orphan Maker, I'll get them out of my face. I, I didn't have any and empath. I mean, empath is okay. But I didn't have any hopes. And here we are, and these, I mean, really making, uh, you know, lemonade out of some lemons here, where Grey Crow is a three-dimensional character now. We care about him. We care about his likes, his fears. I mean, it looks like he might be romantically entangled with Quanon somewhere down the line, and I'm looking forward to seeing that play out, which I never would have thought I'd say. Uh, Quanon here, we're actually using... The Fallen Angel stuff I mean, the stuff with Apoth and the daughter It's all coming back But it's being done in such a way where It's less poetic It's less, uh, you know, uh, speaking in riddles It's more real It feels real And we know that uh, We know that Psylocke is a She's a tortured character But not in like the purple prosy sort of way Like it was in Fallen Angels This is more of a Person who's stuck between a rock and a hard place here She owes Sinister a uh, a kindness, you know, for the kindness he did to her And uh, she's just trying not to rock the boat But still, she has to kind of maintain this team She's got to maintain her focus on the team It's it's a very interesting um, situation that she's in And I can't believe that, uh, that Wells was able to uh, humanize so many of these I mean, Orphan Maker, he, he, we see... So many human elements to Orphan Maker. Uh, Nanny's got a mystery going on. Wild Child has this weird alpha thing going on. It's just, I mean, he's knocking it out of the park here over and over again. Uh, Andrew continues. Putting the Hellions in Murder World was a great idea. I think this story really suits this book, and it's just exciting to see Arcade and Mastermind again and have them be more than jokes. I can't wait to see how the team escapes and how messed up they continue to become. So until we learn what shady deals Sinister and Mastermind were shadily setting up at this story's beginning, make my next lapsed. Oh, I can't wait to see how they escape. And I hope, I mean, I mentioned this during that episode, but it's like, I hope Sinister is still chained into the chair, maybe with a few teeth missing when they get out, just so they can laugh at him. I, I hope that happens. But uh, thank you so much for, uh, for writing in and for talking about that wonderful, wonderful issue of that wonderful, wonderful series, Hellions. Now, for a, um, a challenging email here, um, I got this about a week and a half ago. It was in my spam folder. So uh, over the past several episodes when I was complaining about not having any mail, well, I actually had a piece of mail, I just didn't know it. But uh, I need to be better about checking my spam folder because I would have missed this one. And I think, um, I think Nicholas wrote in not too long ago and it went to my spam folder as well. So I, that one was delayed in response as well. But today, we've got one from another Chris, uh, and it's regarding Marvel's voices, and it's, uh, it's going to be challenging. Um, he says, hello, Chris. I hope this email finds you well. I had something I wanted to say about Marvel voices. I'm glad you got something out of this book, and I'm happy you seem to enjoy it. But speaking as someone who is likely in Marvel's target demographic for this comic, I can't help but to find it a little bit pandering. Are they good stories? 
They're okay, nothing to write home about, and yet it's like all the reviewers on the internet are treating it like it's some sort of modern-day classic out of fear of being called a racist. I don't mean to say anyone, yourself included, is wrong to appreciate these comics, but let's hold back from referring to it like it's the second coming. Just something I needed to get off my chest? Thank you for everything you do. This podcast has helped me get through these last few months of the pandemic, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels that way. Well, first, um, thank you for the kind words here. Uh, that really, really means a lot to me. Um, I've I've actually heard from a few people that having a uh, steady stream of shows has been uh, a source of stability um, and, I guess, reliability in these weird times. So that really means a lot to me that folks are... Uh, would bring that up and, and comment on that. Um, now, as for the rest of the email here, um, and I always get a little bit trepidatious when it comes to things like, you know, uh, things that could be hot button, you know, things like race. But I will, uh, I'll do my best to address at least this issue. Um, and I know I've spoken before about the hyperbolic nature of comic reviewers on the internet. Uh, everything's either a 0 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10. There, there's no room for a below average or average or above average. It's just best thing ever or worst thing ever. And uh, this was neither of that, you know, neither of those, if I can speak correctly. Um, I would say that this was probably a solid 7.5, maybe 8. And I, I didn't read all of it. You know, all I read were the uh, were the ex-pertinent uh, chapters in it. So, I mean, the other stories might blow me away or they might turn me off. I, I really couldn't say. So I can only speak to uh, the three or four stories that we covered. We got the, uh, there was that Forge one. Um, I think there were two Wolverine ones. There was the Emma Frost single page uh, little thing with uh, with the diamond or whatever. And I mean, they were they were fine. They were fine. The uh, the strongest one out of them was probably the Forge and uh, Shuri race um, around the world. That was a fun story. The other three were they were nice. They were inoffensive. They didn't. Uh, I mean, they didn't rock my socks, but they also didn't set them on fire either. And I think I went into this uh, comic with an expectation of what it was going to be. I thought it was going to go one way. I thought it was going to be angry. And perhaps when I read it and realized that that wasn't the case, maybe I overcorrected, you know? Um, I think I was probably a little bit more even-handed with my discussion of the Indigenous Voices uh, installment. I think I referred to those stories as being like X-Men Unlimited fodder. And, and you know, that isn't to say that they're bad uh, or anything like that. It's just uh, they didn't move me one way or the other. I may have also gotten caught up with uh, how important I think uh, initiatives and anthologies like this are and will continue to be. Uh, one of the things that I stressed during the conversation is that uh, the comics industry right now seems to be in a, uh, not to be a you know doomsayer or anything like that, it feels like we're shrinking every single day. And that's from fans to pros, to the entire industry. It feels like it gets smaller every single day. So anytime I see more voices, no, no pun intended, come into, into the hobby, into the industry, more people reading comics, more people discussing comics, more people creating comics, I feel like that's a good thing. You know, I feel like that's a really good thing, and I was very happy to see that in action here. Um... One of the things I'm most proud of in doing this program is that uh, 
I've met so many wonderful people who have lived a different, who have had different human experiences than I've had, you know, where we can learn from one another. And, and I've even received a handful of emails from folks thanking me for ensuring that this program is an inclusive place where uh, everybody's welcome, everybody has a voice, and uh, there's no judgment on anybody. Everybody is just welcome to, to take part and engage and just escape life for a while and, uh, you know, talk about uh, these silly comic books. Um, and, I mean, I hope this doesn't, doesn't come across as too, like, Pollyanna-ish or anything, but uh, it's honestly how I feel here. I want as many people into comics as possible. Not the movies, not the TV shows, not the uh, video games or action figures, just those books that we talk about, those books where all this stuff originated. I, I would love to have more people interested, more people involved in the process and in the discussion. I feel like that's just a, a good thing for the longevity of the industry, and uh, perhaps that's why I may have come across as a little too... Uh, I guess, positive or rah-rah on the uh, Marvel Voices thing. And again, that's not me saying that I suddenly like these stories less, because that's, that's not the case. That's not the case at all. But uh, I do want to thank you for writing in and for challenging uh, me there, and I hope uh, that the other Chris will continue to write in and share, uh, share his thoughts. So uh, thanks so much for uh, that. And that is where we'll leave it here. If anybody out there has any uh, strong opinions either way, uh, please feel free to write in. If you have any strong opinions about anything that we talk about or anything at all, I suppose, feel free to write in. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, or you can talk to us on Facebook, where I actually posed this question. I hope... Uh, the other Chris doesn't mind. I did pose this question on the Facebook group to get some more opinions on uh, both the book as well as uh, my coverage of it. So uh, if you want to join in on that conversation, it's, it's 90s X-Men on Facebook. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere you hear noise. And if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would... Uh, Beg you to tell a friend or two, let them know that this show exists, and uh, maybe it's something that they'd enjoy. But I think that'll do it for today. I'd like to thank everyone so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.